Our attorney salaries are, you know, just above at the current mark, $100,000 for somebody who has potentially 10 or 12 years of experience as a lawyer. And so the ability to recruit and retain experienced, thoughtful prosecutors to this work is really limited. That's per Olaf Swanson. She's a data analytics manager for the Seattle City Attorney's Office talking about a stark issue for the CAO low salaries and losing attorneys. Amidst an effort to clear up a massive backload of cases, what's the city council going to do about that? And also, what about major wage issues for human service workers in Seattle? Plus, what's the latest in the battle for sound transit to bring back riders into its system? Well, a lot to cover this week on Seattle News Views and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel, and the views expressed here are mine all mine. And joining me as an extra special surprise co-host, while David Croman is out on paternity leave here, Erica C. Barnett, editor of Publicola, co-host on the Seattle Nice podcast. Erica, how are you other than extremely busy? What's going on? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. I took a week out of town, so I am I am fired up and ready to go. I love it. I love it. Thank you for being refreshed and ready to go on this. You're going to pull the train today. I know it. I know it. Uh, thank you to you, Erica. Thanks also to our patrons, too. John, Rob, and Mark, I just sent out stickers your way. Send me back a photo or two. And definitely thank you for your support. Thanks finally to Converge Media, our partner for the video version of the podcast. Check it out on Converge Wednesday nights at 7. All right, we're going to get rolling with right here, right now. Well, Erica, to start out, I wanted to digest as best we could a pretty massive 53-page report from the city attorney's office presented to the council this week. A request for higher salaries cleverly disguised as a fourth quarter of 2022 crime report. And just a backstory here, folks, the CAO has lost 12 attorneys over the past two years since city attorney Ann Davison took office, six just in 2023 alone. Now, you could say that happens when there's an election, a change in leadership, but there are some growing economic issues, says the CAO. Their salaries, $81,000 to $110,000 salaries, are lower than six other western Washington cities. We're talking about Tacoma, Auburn, Bellevue, Renton, SeaTac, and Redmond. And Erica, before we get into the crime stats that were in this report here, I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that's uh, those numbers that you uh, that you identified are extremely low. Um, and, you know, the any government um, agency is going to be, you know, non-competitive with uh, the private market. People don't go into um, government service and become attorneys for the city or any government um, to make a boatload of money. Um, but 80,000 um, does not seem right. competitive. Um, I, I did see that um, the city council has uh, approved a memorandum of agreement to increase the pay of the assistant city attorneys. So um, so it sounds like right. that's sort of, it, it, you know, in progress. But um, but but certainly that's got to be a factor. It is. And I, I just it's always interesting for me to track what's happening with city attorney Davison because she ran on a platform as a tough on crime candidate and also a person who wanted to clear out this 4,000 case backlog that former city attorney Pete Holmes had on the books. Has she been successful in that effort? Well, I'm looking through this report, it looks like there's been some progress here. The report showing that that backlog shrank about 20% in the first quarter of last year, but that slowed down in August as these staffing issues really came to bear. I, I just wanted to get your take, Erica, on how City Attorney Ann Davison is doing, because the amount of cases her officers declined, or her office, I should say, declined in the fourth quarter of 2022, did not pursue, is what we're talking about here, was actually more than double what the office declined at the end of 2021. And it just comes across that for all of her efforts to file cases and be tough on crime, et cetera, 
She just didn't have enough staff to make that happen over this past year. Yeah, well, I don't know that I would attribute that all to staffing. I mean, I think mm. one thing that um, the city attorney has has realized, um, you know, she kind of she came into this office without a lot of experience, you know, even as an attorney, right. um, much less, you know, a prosecutor. And I think she is realizing that there are, you know, in addition to there being a very large backlog from uh, her predecessor, there are a lot of reasons that cases get declined. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those reasons are somewhat intractable and just part of, you know, the system. And, and so she's declining. Uh, she's declining cases for all kinds of reasons um, that don't have anything to do with we didn't have enough attorneys. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's everything from the victim says that they don't want to pursue a domestic violence case, for example. Right. Or they go to diversion or um, it's, you know, they decide that they can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, they can't, you know, prosecute cases for misdemeanors when there's a competency issue because the jail is not going to hold those people. Um, so there's there's a whole, you know, there's a lot of interlocking systems and a lot of individual reasons that these cases, you know, end up having to be declined. And I think she's learning that. Um, and once that case lot, that, that uh, backlog is cleared, I, I think that we're going to see very similar and continue to see very similar uh, decline rates as we did with her predecessor, Pete Holmes, because a lot of that stuff is structural. Yeah. I just, in looking at that, just an assessment of how she's doing, because I think there was some friction between her and the council, I, I think, when she first came on board here. And I just wanted to get your take on, on how she's doing overall, because it's a, it's a challenging job, certainly coming in when she did in the middle of the pandemic there. But I, I just wanted to get your overall take on how she's doing as a city attorney. Well, I mean, you know, I <laughs> that's that's very that's very hard to say because it's, um, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's somewhat subjective in terms of what your priorities are, right? She, she definitely came in promising to... Mm-hmm you know, take a more tough on crime stance. I think she has done that. But I think that if you are an Ann Davison fan who voted for her, um, you know, you're not seeing the sort of lock them up uh, results that, you know, her somewhat fire breathing campaign promised. I do think um, this is this is a very wonky point. But um, this data um, uh, that that they're providing um, every quarter is incredibly useful and um and it's not like anything we've seen before and i find it you know i I just find it super useful that she is you know being very open and honest and straightforward about what is going on what the reasons are for declines how many cases are getting prosecuted etc so i'm Mm -hmm. very impressed by that and you know i think that tension with the council has declined and um and of course you know she has a great relationship with the king county prosecutor uh lisa mannion so you know, there's 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 a lot to, to say that's positive about just kind of her her relationships and, you know, her transparency. But, you know, she also has very specific political priorities that, you know, you may agree with yeah. or you may not. Yeah. And we'll see how those play out over the next several months here. But, Eric, I really appreciate the back and forth on that. And I, too, really like the transparency that's going on there. But clearly, these reports and cranking out all this information here every quarter does take something out of the office. And with 12 fewer attorneys than she started with, I know there's some work ahead there. Well, I wanted to work on another issue here. Seattle's Human Services Department filing a report this week in committee about the need for higher salaries for human service workers. So this is something we've heard about for a while, Erica, but now we're really getting down to numbers here. These workers make at least 30% less than those working in non-care industries. Those who leave the industry, we see in this report, see a pay increase of 7% a year later. So the the recommendations from HSD in this report are saying, all right, we need these workers to get at least a 7% pay increase by 2025. And then let's talk about a whole system overhaul. I just wanted to ask this short-term, Erica, 
This idea for a raise for human service workers was a pretty touchy subject between the mayor and the council in last year's budget. So where's this magic source of dollars that's going to make this an easier conversation this year? Well, there not only is no magic source of dollars, I think they're going to be facing even worse um, economic uh, outlooks this year. So um, this study is sort of a um, an aspirational um, look at what it would take to you know, maintain workers and not have the kind of incredibly high turnover that we have, which, you know, hurts people receiving services, you know, in, in every, uh, every aspect of, uh, of human services, you know, all the way to, uh, to homelessness services. So, um, you know, the report outlines the problem, um, but I don't think that it's at the point of saying, and here are the solutions. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is, this has been a long-term problem that's getting worse with inflation yeah. and, you know, when you're talking about these, you know, very low uh, wage increases that people are getting, I mean, of course, they're going to the private sector. I mean, a lot of people in this study um, left the human services field altogether, Um, not just, uh, you know, moving to the private sector, but saying, you know, look, I can't live on this. So I'm just going to get a completely different Mm. job. Right. And I guess I'm just trying to look at that longer term. How do you build this more equitable system for human service workers. And I think you're right with the aspirational just touch to to this report here. But there's a recommendation in this report I read calling for a program that would link minimum salary requirements with job characteristics and skills required, etc. I guess I'm just trying to figure out what does that look like? Who does get the top dollar in the human services field? Do we have even even a, a structure for how what that would look like? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that was a really interesting aspect of the report that they kind of looked at not just what comparable jobs make, but what comparable jobs with comparable skills make. And so, you know, you don't have to compare like human services to human services. You compare human services to, you know, I don't know, electricians. And um, and and so and so that's that's the comparison, you know, is this fair? Um, And. And yeah, I mean, I, the people that make the most are probably, you know, the executive directors. Um, they, they're the ones making the six figures, but even executive directors right. make less than their equivalents in the private sector. So I think it's right. just shining a light on, look, like just because you are in a field that is dominated by women and particularly women of color, that doesn't yes. mean that the skills that it requires to do your job are any less than than fields dominated by men. So, I mean, again, it's, I found the data really interesting, but I think that, and it is compelling, and I think it'll be part of the case for, Mm -hmm. you know, arguing that there needs to be, you know, maybe an additional source of funding for this, or just, you know, a reprioritization of the funding that we already have. Yeah. Yeah. And that point about the amount of women who work in the industry, I think I read 80% of the people employed in the human services uh, industry are women. That's, uh, that's a lot. And when you talk about that wage gap, that's certainly a, a piece of that puzzle there. But um, yeah, I'm very interested to see what happens here because it, it always feels like it's budget season. <laughs> the reopening of Ballard Commons Park and the reopening of some old questions about homeless encampments. We're breaking it down on Now Hear This. Well, in case you missed it, over this past weekend, the city reopened Ballard Commons Park which was shut down in 2021 when a large homeless encampment essentially took it over. I talked with Councilmember Dan Strauss recently about reopening Ballard Commons and how to ensure that such a situation with camps moving in would not happen again. He said the city has learned from the relatively successful clearing of Woodland Park from encampments in May of last year. And here's how the council member explained what's next for Ballard Commons. So Ballard Commons and Woodland Park, we used the same model of 
resolving the encampment, which was we took a census of everyone living there. Yeah. We took a needs assessment of what they, what type of shelter they would take. And then we took the time to get them into that shelter. Well, Erica, this is one of those situations where the proof will have to be in the pudding. The park has only been reopened for less than a week as we are recording this. But what do you think? Do you think this intensive effort from the King County Regional Homelessness Authority with a needs assessment, et cetera, for each person in the encampment, kind of what happened in Woodland Park, can that be replicated in Ballard if indeed we do see camps come up there again? Does that technique work? Some thoughts about this. No, that technique absolutely works. Um, it, you know, that is that is probably the one technique that works where you actually get to know people, spend time with them, um, and don't immediately rush to sweep them out of, uh, out of a location. Um, the problem is that when uh, we do an intense focus on one area, you know, sometimes other areas get neglected when, you know, the very limited number of shelter beds that are available um, get concentrated onto one park, for example, the uh, the rest of the city and indeed even the surrounding neighborhood doesn't get those services. So, I mean, you still have the mass problem of, you know, just huge, huge amounts of homelessness um, and a homelessness crisis in the city. And so, I mean, is Ballard Commons, should it be a priority? I mean, probably it's a park that people use. Um, but I would also say that I think the the reason that huge encampment built up over uh, the, you know, when it did is because of the, the pandemic. I mean, people were not being swept, but more importantly, I mean, people were being told to shelter in place and to stay in place. And so I don't think that you're going to yeah. see something like that again. Um, prior to the pandemic, you know, there are homeless people who hung out in the park. Um that is a, you know, parks are places for everybody to hang out, including people who are homeless. And I think that'll, you know, ideally happen that, you know, we won't enter some sort of police state where, you know, people get uh, swept along. There are benches in the park. Um, you know, there was yeah. there was a push to not have mm -hmm. benches so that people couldn't um, sit down. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I so hopefully mm -hmm. it'll it'll reach, you know, a stasis yeah. where everybody can kind of use the park and, uh, you know, including people who are unhoused um, and, and there won't be you know, a situation like there was before where there were just dozens and dozens of tents. Yeah. Yeah. You make a great point there. I think the pandemic changed a lot of different things, including the, our approach to homelessness. And, and I'm interested to see what happens there uh, with this park as, as the months go by here. But I also wanted to talk to you about this, Erica. So Councilmember Strauss mentioned to me, he's also putting some effort into expanding the city's unified care team, which by any other name, as the navigation team back in action here. Uh, this is the city group from the mayor's office really pushing this that brings together different agencies from parks to the Department of Transportation, Human Services, others to keep public areas clear of homeless encampments. The city's really trying to make this a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood team working with local groups to connect with homeless populations. I'd love your input on this. What's the unified care team going to be able to do that other outreach teams have not been able to do before? Well, <laughs> if I may be blunt, um, nothing. I mean, except sweep more <laughs> encampments. The uh, the unified care team uh, it does uh, you know include a few outreach folks, and that's great. Um, outreach uh, is um, kind of meaningless without places for people to go, and we still have the problem that there mm. are not places for people to go, either shelter or permanent housing. Although we're building more of that, so. Expanding the unified care team generally, what that's going to mean in practice, you know, in addition to maybe a couple more outreach workers, is more parks workers, more SDOT uh, workers to um, remove people from public places and tell them um, to, you know, either give them offers of shelter that they 
do not accept or do not um, keep long term or just telling them to move along to the next location. And so, I mean, it is an exercise in futility to constantly just sweep people along. I mean, except from the perspective, I guess, of people who don't like seeing homeless people in a location. Um, And then, I mean, it works for a while. But you know, as you can see in Ballard, I mean, just go to Dan Strauss's district and uh, walk or drive around. And, you know, people are just being moved from place to place to place. You know, encampments pop up yeah, in one place, yeah. they get swept and, and you can drive to the next street over and there they are the next day. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see uh, see how this plays out in a lot of different ways. You you had reported recently about some of the activity on Third Avenue uh, in downtown Seattle, just to bring up another location there. And when you see that real, uh, uh, real intense uh, focus on a certain area of the city, again, that's great to see. But I, I think it moves it. I mean, in that situation, maybe in just a block down from from Third and Pine, for example, I, I thought that was a very interesting example, Erica. Yeah, I mean, same thing happened at 12th and Jackson, right? The the mm, city focused yeah. on that area as well. But yeah, I was I was just down there yesterday and um, uh, at Third and Pine, and you know mm-hmm. the bus stop was closed. I was very frustrated right. by that. Had to, and and I was told by a downtown Seattle Association um, ambassador, um, you know, the people that walk around with vests and clean up trash. Um, yep. You know, they, they moved the stop over there by Ross, but you don't want to go there because there's a lot of dope and stuff. And Yikes. of course, me, I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> So, so I, so I went (laughs) over there and like, yeah. And you basically have the exact same, you know, population of people that were at third and pine that got, you know, very aggressively swept, uh, by the city, you know, and the Mm -hmm. rest were made and et cetera. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of drugs. It's, you know, a lot of people smoking fentanyl, um, and, and a lot of people just hanging out and it's now concentrated into a blank faced half block where there, where nobody can really do anything. It's in front of Ross. Hmm. And um, and and now the sidewalk is so packed you can't even really you know walk through it without shoving wow. people aside. So it's not, yeah, it doesn't just go away; it just moves. Right, right. All right. Well, I need to move on to another. I wanted to do a state legislature update if I could. First off, where are we on the Blake decision? So this is the legislature's work to fix our state's drug possession felony law, which the Supreme Court has said is unconstitutional. There's been a temporary measure in place making possession a misdemeanor. That system hasn't worked out too well. And it looks like we might be heading to a situation where drug possession becomes a gross misdemeanor. So a little bit more law enforcement heft to it here. Where do you see this issue ending up? Yeah, I mean, I think we are sort of in the recriminalization era. And that's not that's not mm. too surprising. I mean, the, the Blake decision was pretty narrow um, in scope in itself, but it uh, had massive implications, which effectively would have decriminalized Um, you know, almost all possession of almost all drugs. So now we're recriminalizing it. Most likely this will probably pass this year. Um, And uh, the sort of, um, so that's the, the, the stick is law enforcement and the carrot is if you um, get caught with a schedule two drug, you can go to treatment um, and get out of the charges essentially. Mm -hmm. So we covered the treatment angle um, last, uh, last week. um, Sorry, on March 2nd, a couple weeks ago. And um, basically, what it would what it would require is that anyone who possesses any kind of Schedule II drug, so meth, cocaine, um, LSD, heroin, fentanyl, etc., um, would uh, have the option of going to substance abuse treatment. Now, um, this, uh, you know, as experts told our reporter Andy Engelson, um, you know, this is kind of an exercise in. I mean, talk about we were talking about futility. This 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 mm-hmm. approach can be an exercise in futility because a you're assuming that everybody who uses any kind of drug is addicted to that drug, 
Um, and B, you're doing coercive treatment, which, you know, is not the most effective kind of treatment. And, mm. and also choosing a, you know, choosing from a limited, you know, set of types of treatment, um, not all right. of which are evidence-based. And so bottom line, I mean, that results in spending a lot of money sending people to treatment that, you know, isn't necessarily going to result in less drugs on the street, less people, you know, with addiction. And it's, uh, it's going to be putting a lot of people through treatment who don't actually need it. Wow, that's interesting. And when you think about just the lack of treatment resources we have in our state, that's a that's a really cogent point. I appreciate you bringing that up. And I wanted to touch on one other public safety issue here with you, Erica, talking about police car chases. This debate turned into quite a heated one in Olympia, and it seemed to center around concerns with the 2021 law that lawmakers passed saying cops had to have a probable cause someone committed a crime to pursue somebody, a higher legal standard there. The point there was to avoid crashes, violence, deaths during police stops. But some officers said, hey, with that restriction, we can't do our jobs. People are just driving away from us. So the reversal now is when you talk about recriminalization here, officers have to have a reasonable suspicion. So a lower legal standard there. That's what Senate Bill 5532 is saying. Erica, I know there's been a lot of ink spilled on this during the session here, but what do you make of what the legislature's passed? Well, what they're what they're saying now, I mean, essentially is that, as you said, it, it's a lower standard, so they can so police can pursue people under, um, you know, under uh, a lower threshold of suspicion. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, this was this was somewhat predictable that this was going to happen. Um, there is a lot of law enforcement lobbying um, for police to be able to um, to to pursue people in their cars. I'm not sure that they have presented sufficient evidence that this actually would result in you know more um, more crimes being uh, being thwarted. Um, investigations don't generally work that way. Yeah. Um, when we're talking about these lower level, uh, you know, some of the lower level crimes that they want to be able to pursue people for, because of course, you know, violent crime um, has uh, has always been that did not change. So you can police can pursue people who uh, they have probable cause to believe committed a violent crime or DUI. Um, right. And uh, I believe yep. DUI yeah. is already uh, domestic violence cases too. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. So, mm-hmm. um, so they're talking about like robberies, uh, burglaries, things like that. So, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the evidence that this is incredibly dangerous to have police, um, you know, tearing through our streets, uh, for, uh, you know, for those to pursue people who committed those kind of crimes is, is pretty clear. Um, the number mm-hmm. of deaths, uh, went down, um, substantially when the bar was raised. And I think the number of deaths uh, will go up. Um, from, you know, innocent bystanders to the people that are being pursued. So, uh, you know, I think that's just going to be an inevitable result. The data shows it. And so that's what we're going to be looking at again um, if this passes. Right, right. All right. Well, coming up, how will Sound Transit increase its ridership as we attempt to put the pandemic behind us? Some changes coming for this transit agency. Erica's got the details on Transportation Talk. you wrote recently in Publicola about the struggles Sound Transit is going through to get its ridership back up. I know the pandemic has had a a terrible effect on that, but it's also trying to improve that situation right now. Tell us what's going on with Sound Transit. Part of what they're doing is uh, hiring more security guards to be on trains to sort of uh, monitor people's behavior and also hiring more fare ambassadors to the people that wear vests and they come on and they check your fare and they're like a little more friendly than the security guards that, uh, that used to do that work. So, um, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially having more eyes on the train, 
um, being able to kick people off of trains for violating transit rules. Um, that's something that CEO Julie Tim brought up uh, in a meeting a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, she is um, she is from Virginia. Um, she just started at the agency uh, this year. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see what her approach to security is compared to um uh, her predecessor, Peter Rogoff, who I think was very much a fan of, you know, putting people on the trains and, and, and making sure that, you know, behavior is monitored. But stuff right. like, you know, like smoking fentanyl on trains, like smoking yeah. cigarettes on trains, you mm-hmm. know, that stuff should not be going on. So right. um, this is this is an approach that would attempt to to kind of stop that because it because it does drive people away from trains for sure. And Agreed. Buses. And, and, and I wanted to talk about this, just some of the long term answers that might be out there. And you brought this up in your article too. this idea of all right, maybe we kind of streamline things, make a flat fare for more of these different uh, transit services that are going on out there. Can you talk about that, some of these long-term answers? Because this whole idea of making sure that people are paying their fares, et cetera, can get a little complicated. And I think the agency wants to streamline things, at least in such a way that they can get these fares in and make it easier for people to pay and easier for them to recover those fares too. I think there is talk of doing um, all those things. I wouldn't, I don't know that the agency, it's gotten to the point where they're saying they want to do it. I see. Okay. But I mean, I would say that those things would be massively, uh, a massive improvement over the system now, which is incredibly complex. You don't necessarily know how much you're going to pay. You have to tap off with your ORCA card in order not Mm -hmm. to pay for, you know, the, the, the maximal fare. Um, and it's it's a c- kind of confusing system. Um, flat fares, you know, like let's say three fifty or something, three dollars yeah. would 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 definitely simplify the system. Uh, you know, I will say they have a, a fare recovery goal of forty percent of their costs coming from mm-hmm. fares. They've only met that during one year, um, and you know they would have to massively increase fares to to hit their goals. So I think that okay. shows that their goals are too high. Um, but, uh, the other thing they're talking about doing, and this is something that, you know, many other transit systems have done for many years. It's ridiculous. We don't have it is capping fares Mm. and saying, you know, if you, uh, have ridden 10 times in a week, the rest of your fares are free or, you know, 30 times in a month or whatever. Um, New York does it, Portland does it. It's not that hard. Um, and we are just starting to talk about doing it. Wow. Okay. Well, interesting to see what's ahead there, but it is time to tap off here or wrap up, Erica. So I wanted to make sure I said thank you. And also bring this piece up. You had an interesting take on Twitter the other day about a New York Times opinion piece that heading to the office rather than working from home was better for your health somehow. And I'm not calling myself 100% physically fit or mentally stable for that matter, but I work (laughs) from home a lot and it seems to be working for me. What's your thought on this? Oh, I, I mean, I've worked from home for so long, so I have a, I definitely have a bias here, but I, you know, when I was commuting to a job every day, you know, I would walk to the bus stop by my house, get on the bus, walk to the office. Um, and you know, and then at the end of the day, after that long commute, you know, which adds an hour to your day of unpaid, you know, work basically, I was often too tired to work out or, you know, or go for a walk or anything. So I don't know. I think incidental activity is easier when you work from home. Um, and I think that uh, the, this idea that like walking from the parking lot, one, this is one of the examples in the study, walking from the parking lot to uh, to your job um, and sitting down at your desk is, you know, is a great source of, uh, you know, getting steps in your day is, is pretty, yeah. uh, that's a pretty uh, far stretch. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate that you, you walked over to your desk today and, and clicked in with me, Erica. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you.
All right. Thank you, Erica. Thanks to everybody listening to Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics here. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. Please find Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon and show your support. Thanks for watching on Converge Media, too. We'll see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2023.